Welcome to the Signal Line Remote Viewing Podcast, a podcast owned and run by Daz Smith from RemoteViewed.com, the resource for everything remote viewing. This podcast is dedicated to sharing remote viewing related interviews, views, news, resources, and much more. Welcome, I'm Dave Smith, and today's podcast topic is a Laurie Williams AMA discussion, Ask Me Anything. This was recorded on 7th of May 2021 as part of our weekly Zoom remote viewing community discussions. It's a great talk with a great remote viewer which ha- who has a lot of experience in the remote viewing industry, uh, so take a listen and let us know what you think of it. Take care. Welcome Laurie, and it's, it's great to have you on all. Thank you so much. I'm super, I was super thrilled that you asked me to do this. This is so much fun. I really love uh, talking with everybody and answering questions. So if you have any remote viewing questions, you're welcome to ask those. Uh, And sometimes people have other questions that are not related to remote viewing. Like they want to know what an earth ship is like. I'm living in an earth ship. I don't know if you guys can see. Do you guys see this line right here above my finger? Can everybody see this line? See that line right there? That is, behind this wall up to that line are tires, used tires filled with earth. And so these are, um, this is an earth home and it uses garbage as building materials. Uh, Since tires are becoming a huge problem right now worldwide, uh, the guy who came up with this idea to use garbage as as building materials was very concerned about tires. So this house keeps us warm in the winter, cool in the summer without, and we're totally off the grid. So when our county went out of electricity um, for several days, twice last year, it didn't affect us at all. We still had all the the electricity we needed. Um, But anyway, so that's, that's another thing there. Yeah, yeah. Chris asks, isn't that normal when you get excited, electricity starts to flicker? That's so true. Okay, so what would you guys like to talk about today? What does everybody want to talk about? May I start with a question, Lori? <laughs> sure, Demi. You well, can break I, the I, I, I always wanted to ask you this, but uh, we have not time because it was the sessions and all. Uh, my, uh, I, I am... I want to know in the Alaska Triangle, when you did the session, if you want to talk about, at some point you said, uh, I I think uh, I I don't have to to see this anymore. It's not good to see this anymore or something like this. I don't know. I don't know if you, if if you quite remember. And I I do remember. (laughs) And I'm, I was wondering, all, all the time, what was the, the reason of this? And um, what stopped you? Well, um, actually, you know, when they do these TV shows, they film hours and hours and hours. And then, and then what shows up on the TV screen is about two minutes, right? You know, they edit most of it out. Um, so when, when I did that session, actually, um, a lot of people have asked me, what did you find when you did that session? Because they didn't show very much on the Alaska Triangle. And it's really true. They didn't show anything. So do you guys really want to know what I found when absolutely, I was doing that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Well, it, was, it, was, 
it was pretty interesting because, um, you know, I wasn't expecting anything and it was a blind target. In other words, we, we didn't, uh, we weren't told what we were remote viewing, but um, I definitely found myself in a very icy cold place. And I saw a lot of what I perceived to be American scientists um, that were working on something, something they had discovered that they were super excited about. And then I realized that whatever it was that they were excited about, whatever it was they were looking at was kind of a red herring. Are you guys familiar with that term red herring? Um, in English, when we say, oh, that's a red herring, what that means is it's something that is used to distract someone. Like I'm going to, um, you know, kind of like in the movies when the robbers want to, want to, they cause an explosion over here. So everybody runs over there so they can go do whatever it is on this other side, right? I, I found that whatever they were looking at was something that was meant to keep them busy and engaged so that they wouldn't be nearly as um, aware of other stuff that was happening. I did also see a whole network of tunnels that, um, that, the, I think the people who tasked me thought they were only right there, but they are not. They go all of their, their tunnels all over the planet is what I found. Um, and so there was a point, the, the point at which Demi's asking me for is, there was a point in the session where I kind of said, oh, I don't know if I should be looking at this, you know, or if this is a good thing for me to continue looking at. Because Jim and I both were kind of feeling like, oh, this is getting into some pretty deep um, deep areas that maybe aren't something that everybody in the whole world should know about kind of thing, you know, that we necess don't necessarily want going on a TV show that's going to be syndicated all over the whole planet, you know. Um, thankfully, though, they didn't put a single powerful thing from that session in on the show at all. The only thing they used was something that said, oh, I'm in a cold, icy place, because that was what correlated with what everyone who was watching the program could obviously see. You know, so that was that was the main thing. Um, that's that's taking two hours of remote viewing and synopsizing it down to about thirty seconds for you, but you kind of get the idea. <laughs> Thank you. Um, could, did Demi, do you mind if I ask a follow up on that? So what um, what I what I have here, Lori, some of the quotes from the show. You said they were human like, vastly intelligent cunning, I think dissection was mentioned. And then you say, gosh, I'm getting a little bit worried about writing all this stuff down and having it on camera. So what was the uh, human-like aspect? Um, um, I, I some, really, of the, some of the video they showed after Pat Price's little section, you know, it seemed concerning. Yeah, I, I definitely felt that there were there was some extraterrestrial involvement in this. And of course, I always, whenever I say this type of thing, and you guys know that I am not, um, I'm not like Stephen Greer in the sense that, you know, Stephen's all about ETs, right? I'm all about CRV. <laughs> That's my main focus. But inevitably, when you're a remote viewer, you get asked to do stuff that they're pretty sure is going to connect to something extraterrestrial. And I have done tons of sessions on off-planet targets and extraterrestrials and things when I was blind tasked. Um, but in this particular session, I did feel that it was an interesting, I don't know if you could say an interesting collaboration between ET and other governments. It did feel like that, that this was a collaboration. And the only thing that I picked up that that was the thing I was like, mm, maybe I shouldn't write this down, is that I felt that the ET element of it 
was kind of utilizing uh, these red herrings that they could place out there and say, oh, look at this tantalizing thing that you need to examine and look at. Um, when in reality, they kind of just wanted to distract everyone so that they could go about uh, some of the other things that they were working on, a lot of which I felt was involved with mining in um, extracting elements from the planet that they use in their technology. And some of the things that they use, we don't even consider valuable on our, you know, to us, it has no value to them. It has tremendous value. And it was interesting because um, I, I don't think, I think it might've been after that, that I was listening to Dr. Hal Puthoff talk about how in some of the elements that they've collected from some of the um, ET crashes and things like that, they found that the elements that the spaceships were made from were really common inert elements that when combined created like an electronic or electrical power. And I may not be quoting him, I'm definitely not quoting him, but I'm trying to kind of remember what he, what he was talking about. But that's what I remember from it was that it was kind of like, um, interesting inert things from our planet that can be combined to create something very powerful. When uh, <clears throat> you say they're putting these things up to distract you, so you then had the sense that they were aware of you uh, observing? No, 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 no. No, okay. I said I felt the things that the, that the humans were working on in this collaboration were things that had been put there for their distraction so that they would be distracted, not to distract me. Okay, no, so, that, I didn't so, that. so that the humans participating could possibly be somewhat uh, deceived? Yes, or distracted, more, more distracted than deceived. Um, <clears throat> because, you know, just to distract you away from something I don't want you to look at isn't necessarily deceiving you. I'm just simply trying to get your attention on something okay. other than what I want. Kind of like when you hand with the babies playing with the remote and you give them a toy and take the remote, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. Now, what, I, so, what I'm really interested in, now that it sounds here uh, from your transcript and then from your Mount Shasta session, it sounds like there was quite a bit of overlap um, between mm -hmm. the two. I mean, there, there seemed like there's some very strong similarities you perceive the activities at Mount Shasta is not necessarily in the best interest of humans. Um, and then- you No, know, it's so funny. It's, it's funny, Russell, because, um, you know, ha I would almost need to reread those sessions because once I do a session, I don't remember much from it, especially if I go really, you know, if I'm really in depth in my viewing, um, I often don't remember a lot from it. So I would almost need to reread those to see what the correlations are. But they okay. did seem very similar. And when I was viewing them, they both seem very similar. Snowy mountains with stuff underneath tunnels and, uh, you know. Well, in the Mount Shasta one where you described the beings, particularly the being in charge, the nature of their operations um, from the quotes that I took off of your Alaska Triangle thing and compared them when I was doing my underground base presentation, it, it was very similar. Now in the um, Mount Shasta one, the most beautiful part of that um, was when uh, you were having some reaction and then Jim moved you to, what is it that these powers that be fear? And it was autonomy, independence, uh, freedom, cheerfulness, all these things. And then Jim asked you something to the effect of, what, what can we do about it? And I was really fascinated, um, and I'm not a, a, um, 
fundamentalists of any sort, but the description you gave was almost identical to what's in the New Testament called the fruits of the spirit, where by having a particular disposition is almost a deterrent to whatever. So I would, I would ask just straightforwardly, did you perceive what was going on at Mount Hayes um, overall in response to humans, benevolent or malevolent? Um, you know, I don't think it's that black and white, personally, um, where you can just say it's either or. To me, um, it felt like a collaboration, but it did feel as though there was a lot more going on than the humans are aware of with the uh, Mount Hayes thing in Alaska. Um, I, I don't really remember the Mount Shasta thing at all, so I won't even speak to that. Okay. But the, the Mount Hayes one, I definitely felt that there, you know, it, it was at least a pseudo collaboration, if I could say that, you know, a collaboration in which um, the humans were very much aware of the ETs and they were working together supposedly, but then there were other elements to that that seemed um, as though the humans weren't aware of the fullness of the ET side of things. Does that make sense? Uh, I mean, well, the word dissection was a little concerning. Well, no, it was the humans that were dissecting whatever it was that they had found. Okay. That was perception. It wasn't ETs dissecting humans. It, it is was, it okay with you if I put your a link to your Mount Shasta session in the chat for everybody? Oh, sure. The Mount, now, are you talking about Mount Hayes or Mount Shasta? Your Mount Shasta. Uh, well, there's, I don't, there's no session transcript that I'm aware of for Hayes, but you oh, oh. posted your uh, Mount Shasta publicly. So would you mind if I put that in the link? No, it's fine with me. Or in the chat, I, I mean? Yeah, sure. Okay. And... and should probably, you know, I mean, I'm Russell, sure. Russell, wait, Russell, I'm sorry. We should go on though because a lot of other people have questions and we don't want to take up the whole time with just one thing. So oh, I'm going to go ahead and that's okay. I'm going to go ahead and move on because Alexis asked about the Bigfoot session. What do you want to know, Alexis, about the big, <laughs> about the, um, oh, Annika, we don't have, a, um, Annika's asking for the Mount Hayes, but we don't have a transcript for the Mount Hayes um, that's publicly available. Um, so I we have, have to uh, that one. We have Christopher has his hand up for a while. Yeah, Christopher. Oh, hey, Lori, how are you? Fine, how are you? Pretty good. I finally, I finally got your monitoring book. It came in the mail today. I was reading, I was kind of paging through it today. But there was one, one thing I just want to see if maybe you can clarify. Um, I know you mentioned, I think it's in, it was in the ERV monitoring chapter. You mentioned the memory path. Like I mm -hmm. think you said along the lines of viewing the target repeatedly. Does that would that go along like with I guess just regular CRV? Like um, I guess my example I'm thinking of is um if you do a target once, you know, go through it. I only go to stage three right now, so I'll go to up to stage three, and then I guess I'd end the session. But instead of viewing the feedback, it's I'm what I would say, hey, let's not view the feedback, but maybe I'll do the target again tomorrow, you know, maybe when I'm feeling fresher, uh, more, more sharp, but with that, yeah. would my, would my first session kind of, kind of pollute my second one or do I have to like, kind no. of like, so how no, would that? Not Here's, well, let me explain how we, how we do it when we're doing operational stuff, um, at least in, in my, in my, my sphere of influence or my, my group, when we do operational sessions, we repeatedly view the target. So let's say that I'm working on a project 
and it's due in two weeks. My, my report is due in two weeks. So I have two weeks to view this target, right? So what I usually do is I'll sit down and I'll start my session and I'll view for about 30 minutes and then I'll write break and the time. And then I might, it might be two days later, I come back and I put resume with the date and the time that I'm resuming and I jump right back in. And when I jump back in, I like to take the coordinates again and do another AB process. Are you familiar with, you're familiar with that, right, Christopher, yeah. phase one? I do another phase one, but um, I just do it to kind of get, get back in touch with the target. And then I jump back into phase four, which is usually, I usually don't take a break um, the first time I do a viewing until I'm in phase four, which for me takes five or 10 minutes to get into phase four. So I do phase four, I'm in phase four, I'll take my break. And then when I come back two days later, I resume, I do a quick a, you know, phase one, and then I jump back into phase four again. And I pick up where I left off. I never look at my pages from the first viewing. So two days ago, let's say I did in 30 minutes, I did eight pages of, you know, so I have eight page pieces of paper. I don't look at those eight pieces of paper. I just put page nine at the top and I jump right back in where I left off. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does, yep. Yeah, and that way I'm not picking up all those AOLs and stray cats and, you know, nouns and, and ideas or castle building that I had going on in my head. I'm not picking all that up all over again. If I had a problem with that in my previous viewing, um, I'm starting fresh all over again on the same target. And if you do that repeatedly, you are building a memory path to the target and the target becomes easier to view with each viewing. So I might view, let's say 40 minutes the second time or 30, depends, you know, there's no set time. I just kind of, I try to always quit on a high um, you know, like if I'm getting great information, sometimes that's a good time to stop, believe it or not. Sometimes I stop if I've been viewing for 40 minutes or so. I'll go, you know, I'm getting great information, but I think I'm going to take a break now because I like to break when my subconscious is really giving me great information so that my subconscious goes, wow, this is fun. I want to do it again. Instead of breaking when I go, oh my gosh, nothing's coming. I'm just dry as a bone. I don't know, you know. I'm not even getting anything. If you stop that when that's happening, your subconscious goes, oh, well, you know, if, if I just stop giving information, then she's gonna let me take a break. Whereas if I stop when I'm getting great information, the subconscious goes, oh, well, I'm just giving her information and she took a break. So this is fun, I wanna do it again. And it keeps it fun and happy because to my subconscious, I don't know about yours, but mine's very childlike and loves to have fun. So when I'm viewing and I'm having a good time, that's when things get really good and interesting and more accurate. So, so that's that. Thanks. Sure. We have uh, Rich up next with his hand up for a while. Hi, Rich. There he's Rich. Where's Rich? Uh, there we go. Sorry about yeah. that. Sometimes I can hit the space bar, sometimes not. Um, <laughs> uh, that was a good tip. I like that, Lori. Um, I, I actually was interested in the Bigfoot thing. Uh, I'm not familiar with your session, but um, just curious what you kind of got from the sessions you did. Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, Bigfoot, the, the, the hilarious thing, guys, first I have to tell you, I have never been into Bigfoot ever in my life. It just wasn't on my radar. It was just nothing that ever interested me. So my full experience with Bigfoot was Harry and the Hendersons movie when I was, you know, young. So that, that, so I had I have to start with that. But then um, 
I was asked by Coast to Coast Radio to do three blind targets and to view them and then to reveal my results on, you know, on the show. And then they would tell me after I revealed my stuff, they would tell me, um, they would tell me their whatever the targets were. So I went ahead and I did it. Um, and I, Lynn and I were joking because I was like, well, this is either going to really be like the best dog and pony show ever, or, uh, I'm going to have to find a new career <laughs> you know, once this is over, find something else to do. Um, so the first, I started the first session and I was totally blind to the target and I, I took the coordinates and you know how, when you first start a session, sometimes, uh, your idea about what the target might be. Have any of you had this happen where your idea about what the target might be pops into your head and you're just like, oh no, now I think it's going to be the Taj Mahal or something, right? Have you, raise your hand if you've ever had that kind of thing happen where you suddenly think, I, you know what the target is. And then you have to fight that the whole time, right? You're fighting with that whole idea that the target's going to be the Taj Mahal. Well, in this case, I started my session and immediately thought, oh no, it's going to be Bigfoot. <laughs> and so I was like, oh no, it's going to be Bigfoot. So I was, I looked up at, at my husband and I said, oh, I have this idea now in my head that this target's going to be Bigfoot. And I said, just tell me it's not Bigfoot. And that way I can just set that aside. And he just looks at me and says, go for the unknown, you know, <laughs> which is, it, it, that's a statement that we've been trained to go for that a tough, resilient, useful remote viewer is able to handle pollution. Because if you get polluted, like when you're a remote viewer, somebody's gonna run up to you and, and just blurt out what the target is, right? Please, my kitty's missing, can you help me find her, right? I mean, everybody has that happen. And if you can't handle a little pollution, then you're kind of useless as a remote viewer. So one thing I like to teach my students is to become very resilient. And we actually kind of teach them as they progress, not in the very beginning, but as they get more advanced, we really work with the students to develop resilience to pollution so that they can get polluted and just keep going and still view the target and do it well. So go for the unknown is something that Mel Riley and Lynn Buchanan used to frequently say to me if I felt polluted, overly polluted. They'd say, well, you know, you a lot of times in the military, we got polluted. A general would walk in and say, hey guys, we've got a hostage crisis in Iran remote viewers, you guys get to work, you know, and they were told right up front. And actually I found it fascinating when Deborah Katz, who was um, examining all of Ingo Swan's original documents in the library at the University of Atlanta, where uh, Ingo's family has donated a lot of his, his papers. She said she was shocked to discover that on the Pluto, I mean, the Jupiter uh, target that he did and on several other major targets that he's famous for, he was completely front loaded. He knew exactly what the target was before he ever started his session. And so the idea that no one should ever be polluted, you should never ever give any front loading, um, it's just not realistic. It's not that it's wrong, it's just not realistic because in real the real world, we are gonna get polluted um, as viewers. So we have to be tough and resilient and able to handle pollution. Okay, so I thought maybe it's Bigfoot, but I just went ahead and I kept viewing. And that session ended up, Rich, you asked about it, that session ended up being one of the most profound sessions I've ever done. It was 
so amazing. Um, I, I got to a point in the session where I was doing um, a technique that I call toggling the line or, or surfing the quantum wave. These are just tech, uh, terms that I came up with for this, but it was something that happened to me after I'd been remote viewing for about 11 years. I found that sometimes when I would be doing a CRV session, now with CRV, you've got a written structure. It's very well defined. Your eyes are open and you're remote viewing um, and your, your body is very engaged. At the same time, sometimes you can kind of slip into an ERV state where you're kind of in a hypnagogic state. That's what ERV is. It's a hypnagogic state where you're literally kind of in the alpha to theta brainwave states. And I only say that because I have a background in hypnosis. And so with hypnosis, we do study the brainwave states. And with um, when you're going into a deeper state while you're remote viewing, you're usually slipping into alpha and sometimes even dipping a little bit into theta, but the difficulty and the reason Ingo Swan used to discourage remote viewers from bilocating is because he said, hey, this is an interview and report methodology. And when you bilocate, you stop reporting. You know, it's like the lights are on, but nobody's home. And so the key to toggling the line or surfing the quantum wave is when you can continue to write while either bilocating or being in a very deep ERV state. And that's really, really hard. It's extremely advanced. But the first time it happened to me was mind blowing. And I went to uh, Mel Riley at the time and asked him about it because he was the guy I would go to when something really weird happened that I really didn't know what that was. And, uh, and he said, that's how I always remote view. He said, and I had to try to keep the superiors and the unit from realizing what I was doing because we weren't supposed to be using ERV like that. We were supposed to just use strict CRV. Um, so when I was doing the Bigfoot session, I, I got into that state and I suddenly felt like I was really communicating with this being almost like mind to mind. And it was fascinating to me. And what, um, what I understood from that session was that, and I thought this was so radical and that I wasn't even gonna, how could I even say this on coast to coast radio? And then I found out most people who are really into Bigfoot already knew this, but I had no idea. But basically as a skunk uses its smell as a defense and a snake, for example, a rattler has its venom as its defense. The defense of Bigfoot or Sasquatch is the ability to time travel. And so, and the thing about it is what I understood if, if I was understanding everything correctly is that Bigfoot can suddenly be in a different time, but it stay in exactly the same space. So for example, where I'm sitting right now, I've got a house around me, but, um, but imagine a hundred years ago, you know, this house wasn't here a hundred years ago. In fact, a um, hundred years ago, this was probably a pinto bean field um, where I'm sitting right now. So imagine if I could suddenly just step back in time, I'd be sitting in a pinto bean field, but it would be a great defense if someone was suddenly burst into the house and wanted to kill me and I suddenly vanished, but I would still be in the exact space, but sitting in a hundred years back in time. Um, and so I, I asked a lot of questions during that time and got a lot of information. And then I shared it all on um, Coast to Coast Radio thinking, oh, this sounds insane. People are going to think I've you know, lost my marbles. Uh, but in reality, I found out, no, actually, that's a very 
that's a, it's a common thing. And I asked Mel and a Navajo friend, Mel was part of the Ho-Chunk tribe and he wasn't by blood a Ho-Chunk, but he had been a, grown up in the tribe and they, they accepted him as one of their own. And uh, he said, yeah, everybody knows that Sasquatch is a time traveler. And then I was speaking to a Navajo friend and he said, everybody knows that Sasquatch is a time traveler. So here I thought I'd gotten this really radical new information and everybody's like, oh man, everybody knows that. But uh, yeah, and Mel told me a fascinating story that there's a Ho-Chunk legend about a young guy who was on his vision quest, you know, to prove his manhood. And he became very ill and passed out. And when he awoke, he was in a Sasquatch camp encampment. And the Sasquatch, you know, brought him back to health and then took him back to his own camp. And when he walked in, no one recognized him because it was 75 years later. So I thought that was pretty fascinating. Um, but anyway, so yeah, so I got a lot of really great information. I think Russell was very sweet to put that in there somewhere. I think it's there. Yeah, there it is. Um, uh, I think the Bigfoot session there, he put it right in there. Thanks, Russell. So yeah, if you want to- I put a link to the whole uh, archive show on C2C as well. Perfect. Oh, can you get in that without paying? I believe, it, I believe it's a behind a paywall. But I do know a lot of members in the RV, uh, or a lot of people in the RV community are members. Um, okay. There was a YouTube of it, but that's been taken down probably because of, um, you know, whatever proprietary rights. Okay, so the yeah, Bigfoot sessions right there um, at on the at the two thirty mark uh, on my computer. I don't know where it is on yours, but anyway, it's uh, it's right there. If anybody wants to pull that up and. Uh, that's that's the full session really um right there that uh, awesome. that that's good but yeah perfect so, thank you Lori. sure did someone else have a question we have a uh, judy has had her hand up for quite a while is that julie ashley that's me hi laurie <laughs> hi julie how you doing <laughs> great i'll just talk about esoteric targets has made me wonder about creating an ideogram and you may have to think about this and not answer it today but um, there's a telepathic overlay problem with esoteric targets, meaning if the target is something that does not exist, and I'm not explaining to you, I'm just explaining for the other people. If the target doesn't exist, my mind might go to the next drugness signal, which might be the tasker's idea that Bigfoot exists. So mm -hmm. I'd be get, getting along great session, but maybe at some point in the session, I think, oh, this sounds like Bigfoot. Maybe I could create a, an ideogram that tells me the source is the tasker and not reality. Or, you know, maybe there's something like a, a suspicion ideogram I could make. But the problem being, if I create a suspicion ideogram and I take the coordinates in the middle of the session again, because I'm suspicious, have I front loaded a suspicion? <laughs> you probably have. That is exactly true, yes. And, but I do like the idea of creating an ideogram to let you know that there's something wrong. You know, like, uh, for example, any one of us could fall prey to a, a tasker who had less than honorable intentions. Right. Um, so I always tell people, be sure to vet the tasker, be sure to vet the tasker. But number one, not everybody does, you know, especially if the tasker is waving money at you. Sometimes people don't vet the tasker very well. Um, another thing, too, is that sometimes um, the tasker 
could be fine. I mean, in the vetting, I mean, you look them up on Google and Google seems like everything's fine. But in the reality, um, let's say that someone did have a nefarious reason for having you view. Um, for example, I think, I think Gail once mentioned she had heard of a, a situation in which this really sad man came and said, it wasn't to her, it was in another scenario, but she had heard about it where this man was like, oh, could you please help me find my daughter? She's run off with our granddaughter and she won't speak to us and we miss them both so much. Please help us, please help us. And it turned out that he was like this horrible man who, you know, the daughter had put out a restraining order and all that, you know. So imagine though, if you were just innocently trying to help this poor man who was crying on your doorstep, so to speak. And and then, you know, you your ideogram that says something's wrong, stop viewing comes up and you go, ooh, what's wrong? Then you could do a session on why you got that ideogram. You know, so I could see the benefit in having an ideogram that would indicate to you that maybe maybe there's something that's not in the up and up. You know. Thanks. I figured it was a little different than doing taskers intent, but yeah, it is a little different than doing taskers intent, but you can taskers intent is always helpful. For those of you who don't know what taskers intent is, um, if you are remote viewing something and something feels like it's a miss, you don't know what, you can always move to the tasker's intent to try to understand what the tasker really wants. Because especially if you don't have a good project manager um, and you're just working directly with customers or clients, sometimes the customers don't know how to ask the right question. And that can really cause a session to kind of go awry. If they aren't, if they don't know how to ask the right question, then what do you do, you know, what do you do about that? Do you think you're answering the question they're asking? And then, and maybe you are, but they didn't ask the question that they really needed the answer to. And so that's a, that's an issue. Now, um, Rich, Lynn, Lynn doesn't use, um, I don't know how many ideograms Lynn has nowadays. You know, that's a good question. I don't remember, but I heard, I heard a rumor. I don't know that it's true, but I heard a rumor that um, Bill Ray, everybody know who Bill Ray is? I heard a rumor that Bill Ray has like 350 ideograms. Um, I don't know if it's true though. I should ask Bill because he and I are friends on Facebook. Interesting. <laughs> so I don't know. I have like, I only have like 10 that I use on a regular basis. But the interesting thing about ideograms is if you had um, something that made you need to have an ideogram for a certain thing. For example, years ago in 1999, Marty Rosenblatt asked me to do a research project with him. And uh, he said, could you create an ideogram for animal, an ideogram for vegetable, and an ideogram for mineral? So I did. I created those three ideograms, and I did the, the, the project that he wanted me to work on. And then once I was done with that project, I didn't know, need those three ideograms anymore, and I just let them go. Another time, Lynn Buchanan was asked by the, the Coast Guard to fly over an area where all these ships were, um, were moored and to let them know which ships had drugs on them. And so as he was flying over, he, he, before he got on the, the plane to fly over, he just quickly created an ideogram for drugs. And then as they were flying over, he, as he looked at each ship, he would do a quick ideogram. He would get man-made, man-made, man-made. And all of a sudden he got the one for drugs. And so then he said, okay, that's the one with the drugs on it. And they, they boarded the ship and found the drugs. So, um, so you can have temporary ideograms. 
if that makes sense. And you, and you know, I have a free ideogram practice program on my website. That's free to anybody. It's right on. You don't have to even give me your email or anything. It's right on the uh, website. Um, should I share that really quick, Daz? The free stuff. Yeah, go ahead. That that would be great. Okay. I, I, when you said that I could share the screen, I was thinking, why would I want to share the screen? But now I realize, no, I really should share the screen. Oh, let's see. I've got my calendar up here. Let me go to this and pull up a new window and I'll share my screen with you guys. And you can just see, we have a ton of free things on the website for everyone. Um, and it's it's all free. It's right here under free stuff. Um, there's so, there's several little mini classes that are free that are the uh, 15 steps ARV for the lotto, ideograms and their nuances, and three easy steps for using CRV to improve your life. Hmm, that's interesting. Then I didn't know that was there. Then there's ideogram prep, uh, practice, the ideogram practice, which you can just use. You can put whatever words you want here. If you click the X, um, that'll take that word away. Like you click the X and it'll say, uh, you're removing biological, you say, okay, and you can make it go away. And like, for example, weapon, you could add one for weapon. If you were a policeman, you might need one for weapon. I don't need one for a weapon right now. So I'm going to take that away. I'm going to put bio back in there. And then if, when you're ready to practice, you have your paper and pen ready and you just uh, go ahead and push play. Man-made, man-made, and then you biological. Can, you can control the speed by pushing the back arrow and that makes it slower. Natural. Natural, 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 space air, man-made, water. You can also speed space it up. Air. You can speed it up by going faster. And then when biological, you're done. man-made, motion energy, then, biological. Then when you're done, you just click the X in the middle and that turns it off. So that's a free ideogram practice and you can create your own ideograms and add them. One time, just for fun, I put, I typed in supercalifragilisticexpialidocious just to see, <laughs> and it actually says it. It says supercalifragilisticexpialidocious in that horrible computer voice. Um, this was, this program was actually invented by Lynn Buchanan, but it was made to, like this for any computer by Stephen Ross, who also just recently completed the virtual monitor. And I'm super excited to show you this. This is completely free. Daz, I don't know if you saw this, but this is so cool. Like, so you have a new student who's just learning this. Um, they can type in their coordinates and then uh, you, it'll read the coordinates. Now the coordinate, we found out in order to adjust the speed to make it a little slower, we had to use my voice. Two, three, four, zero, nine, eight. That's still a little too fast and we're still working on the programming to get it to slow down a little bit so that it's not quite that fast but it'll read the cue, the coordinates for you. And then when you need a cue, you can come down here to customize before you start and decide how many cues do you want at a time. So here we have it set for five cues at a time. So if we want only sensory cues, cues that relate to your eyes, your ears, your nose, your mouth, your sense of touch, uh, and then and the sense of ambiance, you can push this and it'll read five cues for you. Sounds, sound quality, density, smells, temperatures. Okay, so that's five cues. Now, one thing too, is that everybody's computer has different voices on it, depending on who made the computer, whether it's Apple or Microsoft or whatever. This one is set to Alex. I've actually found, and the hilarious thing is that Yuri, there's one on here called Yuri. He, he sounds like he wants to kill you. <laughs> and then there's, 
Um, and there's Diego who speaks a form of Spanglish that no one understands. Uh, but then if you keep going if, um, with this, you can come all the, oh, what happened to it? It changed. Oh my gosh. I used to say, there used to be one that was um, UK. Oh, it, okay. So he's changed the list. Anyway, there's, you can test the different ones and see which ones you like on there. I like the one that was female UK, but it's not on there anymore. Anyway, and then you can also do dimensional cues. So you're going to use this customized thing the first time, and then you're going to just shut it down and you won't need that anymore. You'll have it from then on and you can just... Density, tone, pattern, smells, textures. And you can also, if you want to, you can just push these... Temperatures, density, sounds, smells, textures, luminance, luminance so so you shapes colors i pushed it too many textures times. shapes tone taste i pushed it a lot <laughs> then you can do action cues slap the target pitch taste the target pitch mentally put your nose against the target sound quality taste the target pitch and then you can move commands. Move 100 yards in front of the target and describe what you sense. Move 10 yards closer towards the target and describe what you smell. Move 10 feet above the target and describe what you taste. So those are move commands. So this is called the virtual monitor because if you don't have a monitor, and a lot of times when you're a new viewer, brand new viewer, and you don't have a monitor, um, you can just be like brain dead. Like, what should I look at next? What should I do? Where do I go? What do I describe? And um, so these free things on the website uh, can help. You know, they'll just, they can really help, especially the virtual monitor. I really like that one. Um, and, the, and the ideogram practice. There's also a thing called the ideogram slideshow here. And that is, is a, just kind of the way we teach ideograms. And it's based on a presentation that I did at Irva years ago. So anyway, that's all the free stuff. And then there's also the blogs, by the way. If you, um, one of my students called me the other day and said, how come I didn't know about your blogs on your website? Because there's tons of remote viewing teaching in those blogs on the website. So if you ever uh, want to just, you know, see, oops, I guess I took it away. Um, if you ever want to just look at, learn some new stuff about, remote viewing, there are so many things. There's like the art of, of viewing activities right here in the blog section. There's things like the art of viewing activities. Um, there, this one about, do you feel protected? A lot of people write me and say, how do you teach protection? Um, and then there's one, how to survive the coming global superstorms, finding your ideal location. I was getting a lot of people writing and saying, how did you end up in New Mexico on the, you know, living in an earthship off grid? Uh, what made you decide to move there? Um, these things, finding your ideal location and how to survive the global superstorm are all answering those questions. Um, and then here's one, how to talk to devout Christians about CRV. Again, that came from a request from some students saying, you know, how do we talk to our family members? They think we're worshiping Satan now that we're doing remote viewing, you know, or whatever. Um, and then visualization and remote viewing and things like that. There's just, and there's, if you click older entries, I mean, there are folks, there are like 10 pages of blogs that go back several years. What is the aesthetic impact? Um, you know, just things like that. How, let's see, 
some of these aren't named appropriately, but um, can anyone learn remote viewing, how to remote view a target, asking the right questions when you feel like quitting, read this. Um, how can I progress faster as a remote viewer? Uh, things like that. There's just, you just keep going. There's more and more things there. So if you're interested in learning more and you, you just, you want to learn and you don't need to pay for it, it's all free. That's the neat thing about it. So. Thanks, Laurie. That's another great resource. Uh, Sasha's had her hand up for quite a while. If you want to go next, Sasha. Oh, for sure. Hi, Sasha. Hi, Laurie. Um, <laughs> I, you've kind of addressed part of my question actually in, in what you were just showing. Um, I see the usefulness of remote viewing. I'd like to see it used for things like maybe exploring the nature of time or questions that physics maybe struggles with a little bit. Um, but one of the concerns that I have is that there, there does seem to be partly a paywall um, and then partly, I don't know if it's just a human tendency to want to keep information secret. We want to keep it within our clique. We want to vet the people who we give our secrets to, and we don't trust other people to vet others, right? We kind of want some control over who finds out our secrets. And so, <laughs> right? And, and, and I think that, that that's valid, especially with something as powerful as remote viewing. But at the same time, I worry that, you know, I see a lot of uh, societies that were created to safeguard information that either they get corrupted because if it's a small group and then you have someone influential who comes in somewhere along the way, that can get corrupted. Or, and I was thinking about this with the pandemic, we were very lucky with COVID. Uh, it has such a low death rate. So even though it's primarily killing older people, um, the death rate is still fairly low. But if there was a variant that was a little bit more aggressive and targeted slightly younger people, I can just imagine that you could lose a lot of the people who know the most about more advanced remote viewing, for example. Um, and so partly because there aren't a lot of very young remote viewers, and that's partly because it's expensive to get training and all the free resources, we all know about the free resources, but I don't know that young people who aren't really in these circles stumble upon it. That's why it's great to see, um, to see it on Reddit. Um, but so I'm, I'm just kind of wondering about this, about this idea of that, that some people aren't ready or, or maybe well-intentioned enough to begin given access to some of the, the higher level information or the higher level skills. But then you have to balance that with keeping this stuff secret. And then because you did that, then that information gets lost to us. Right. That so was we need it now. I have to say, Sasha, that this was the first day of the first class that I took. I, that's exactly, I had this exact conversation with Andrew Cannon. I was like, <laughs> what's going to happen to this when you die? You know, <laughs> Lynn jokes that I've been waiting for him to die for 30 years, you know, which is not true at all. But, but the hilarious thing is I, you know, I was concerned because I was just like, I thought, I didn't know how old he was, but I thought he was pretty old. He was actually only 56 at the time, but I was 39 and he thought I was like 20. So he was like, you know, poor lady, she's telling me about her children and her grandchildren. She, these, this, she has an imaginary family. She's lost her, her marbles. But, <laughs> but anyway, so if I understand what you're asking, it's basically like, how can we ensure that this goes on and that younger people are learning it? I'm very happy to report that number one, that was my 
my big concern, exactly what you just said. I've just been really concerned about that from the get-go. And so uh, one of the things I'm doing is everything I make pretty much, I invest back into my, my business by trying to reach a broader audience. So right now we have a lot of Facebook ads because I wanted to reach outside that pool of, you know, like there's, there, like you said, the clique of, you know, there's 11,000 people in this group. There's a, you know, this remote viewing group, this remote viewing group has 14,000. That one has 8,000. Well, if I only stay in those little pools, you know, where no one's ever going to find out about this, but I had a major revelation in 2015, I attended a business conference because business is not my thing. Marketing's not my thing. I'm a teacher. So I figured, okay, well, I need to invest in and take, spend some time and learn about business. So I went to this marketing conference. And um, so there's, you know, 500 people that are all never thought a, a minute about anything psychic in their lives, right? They're all just there to learn about marketing. But we had to develop a spiel, you know, that we could say to people, so suddenly I'm having to practice with all these people who are, have no interest in remote viewing, never heard of it. And I'm having to like give them a spiel on remote viewing to get them interested in it. And they were fascinated. These were people who had never even you know, thought of anything and they were totally absorbed and fascinated. And if I had actually had like a, a course to sell at the time, like a, like a video course, I could have sold a million of them at that thing because people were just like, oh my God, are you are, really? I mean, I will pull out my checkbook right now and write you a check. So I realized at that point that we really had, we had there's almost 8 billion people in the world. We've got to reach them somehow. And that's my whole vision. That's my whole thing. And you'll be happy to know though that a lot more young people are coming on. I've been having so many students that are in their 20s and 30s lately. It makes me really happy. Not that I don't appreciate my older students. I love them too. But I'm super excited by the fact that we have so many young people coming on. So thank I hope you. that reassures you. <laughs> I hope that reassures you a little bit. <laughs> yes, thanks. Earlier, we had a question from Tracy and she asked, Laurie, what was the strangest thing you'd seen whilst remote viewing? The strangest thing. That's a hard one. Um, what's the strangest thing I've seen while remote viewing? Well, I mean, I have to say, just because I'd never studied Bigfoot, that that was pretty wild. Oh, but I think the most profound, I don't know if it's the strangest thing, but I've definitely had sessions that completely blew my mind. Is Does that count, Tracy? Um, <laughs> that completely blew my mind because they, I learned things from remote viewing the certain things that, uh, completely contradicted or, um, not always contradicted, but kind of blew my belief system into a different realm. You know, things that I'd always accepted as fact, suddenly I found out they, maybe they weren't fact. Um, and, and that, you know, I'm like, for example, I never thought that there were any more than three dimensions. Um, and then I discovered there were actually quite a few dimensions. <laughs> and uh, then I came into the idea that there could also be multiple universes and parallel universes and string theory, things that just were never part of my, my thinking. Suddenly, because of remote viewing, became a part of my thinking. Um, and years ago, um, Daz, our very own Daz, who's right here and hosting this, asked me if I would write an article for Eight Martinis magazine, which is like the best remote viewing magazine, by the way. And so I, um, I wrote an article called 18 Years of Excitement. Um, and it was at the time he asked me to do it, I'd been a remote viewer for 18 years. Now it's been 25 or 26, but 
I wrote this article. Can you believe that, Dax? That was that Dax, it was that long ago. <laughs> anyway, so I wrote this article in Eight Martinis, and it's actually in the blogs too. And it's called 18 Years of Excitement. But in there, I shared uh, some of my strangest, wildest remote viewing experiences. And one of them was in when um, as soon as I started the session, I found myself on Mars. And I instantly knew I was on Mars, but I like bilocated to Mars and I was standing on Mars and the wind was blowing really fiercely. And I felt as though I was there way in the past, like not in present time at all, but maybe millions of years in the past. And I found myself standing amid these, um, a circle of these obelisks. And um, I, I was asked by my monitor to move to the top of one of the obelisks. So I moved to the top and uh, and describe the purpose. So I said, okay, and I said, this is both for transmitting and receiving. So the monitor says, move to that which is transmitting to the obelisk and describe. So suddenly I found myself in a totally different reality and dimension with these blue turquoise beings that were kind of amorphous. They didn't really have much of a shape. And so we affectionately call them the lava lamp people, <laughs> which is kind of funny, but it was just that they seemed like to us, like kind of like the stretching of the lava lamp. But anyway, I, um, they were really giving a very profound message of love and concern for the planet and, and things. I don't remember all the details now, but it was very profound um, enough to like really be moving emotionally. And after it happened, I was really concerned about, hmm, you know, like, what was that about? And I was wondering how to, this was a paid session. I got paid $500 to do the session. So I was like, hey, I need to write this report and it needs to be, you know, it needs to really be good. But what did I, you know, what do I say? How do you explain this weird thing that happened? So um, I wrote up my report and then the tasker called and said, Mel Riley wants to talk to you. And at this time, Mel and I were not super close. We didn't know each other that well. This was many years ago, but um, I called Mel and he said, tell me everything that happened. So I started telling him what happened in session. And then he started finishing my sentences because he had had the exact same experience that I had. Exact, he saw the obelisk, he saw the blue beings, he got the same message. He said, we were communicated with. And uh, and he was, that that kind of melded our melded our whole relationship and made us best friends after that. So that was, that was really one of the wildest, it was definitely a big, huge turning point for me in many areas of my life. Um, oh, here, Kava, and you have your hand up. Hey, uh, hello, yes. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's wonderful to, uh, to see you here. So yeah, uh, I have a few, uh, this question, you know, since you just mentioned your experience about uh, the Sasquatch and, you know, the um, aspects of, you know, how it uh, time travels and things like that, right? So I just wanted to know whether if you know there uh, if there's been uh, any kind of kind of an effort to communicate with the being uh, to basically get information about uh, you know okay we have an aspect an ability called remote viewing you know it, it's possible within the human realm uh, is there a way to you know evolve this uh, aspect within ourselves? maybe even eventually get uh, to a stage where, you know, uh, we could probably time travel as the Sasquatch does, because, I mean, you know, the, uh, the, the possibilities are endless, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, so anything on those lines? Has there been anything on those lines? Um, 
yes, because I, after having some of these different experiences, we have um, gone back into session to try to communicate further and get more information. And we've gotten quite a bit of information. And um, in fact, my husband and I were just talking the other day how we need to dig up a lot of these sessions that are kind of like milestones sessions where information came through that we never bargained on, you know, that we didn't expect um, mm -hmm. that really, like, for example, I'm, and I hate to make myself sound like a, a true Luddite, but prior to getting into remote viewing, um, I was really pretty much very limited in my thinking. I didn't think I was limited at the time, but I can look back now and go, I really had a very limited um, scope of thinking because everything was pretty black and white. There was God and the devil, you know, there was heaven and hell, you know, there was good and evil. It was, everything was just really black and white. Whereas now it's much broader and much more colorful. Um, and when it comes, I feel like remote viewing is really the ultimate time travel tool. Mm -hmm. um, but I, one of the things that started coming through in a lot of these sessions was a conversation about frequencies and vibrations, which were not part of anything I ever thought about. Frequencies oh, okay. and vibrations, like what? What does that have to do with anything? And um, but really talking about how everything is related by frequency and vibration, and how we're all interconnected. You know, so, so uh, yeah, there's, I don't know if I've answered your question very well, Kevin, but, um, but it's just, you know, I mean, it's kind of up to the viewer, how much does the viewer want to explore? And what kind of track record does each viewer have? Because if I had never remote viewed in my life, and I suddenly decided to remote view the, the ETs on some remote planet, and I suddenly just started describing all these ETs to you, you'd be like, well, how, how many sessions have you done? in which there is provable feedback and how, what are your, what are your remote viewing strengths? Well, if I had never done a session, I could have just gone off on a, a flight of fancy with my imagination. That's one of the reasons that Lynn Buchanan decided to, to trademark the term controlled remote viewing, because a lot of people were saying I'm teaching controlled remote viewing when they were really just teaching, close your eyes and take a trip now to the planet Zircon in the, the galaxy of Nebulae and tell me what you're experiencing. And then people would be like, oh my gosh, I had the most amazing experience. But I mean, sometimes dreams are amazing, you know? So it's like, we can fool ourselves unless we have a solid track record that's based on solid targets that we can actually score our stuff. Um, and, and we just started a new database on our website that we're really excited about. But um, so that we can actually really look and see what our strengths and weaknesses are. Like, are you much yeah. better at doing people than you are at man-made objects? But how will you know that if you don't view things that you can score and actually, you know, and actually take a look at? Uh, Lori? Yes. Inga uh, uh, Swan trademarked the CRV thing. Lynn, it's Lynn. I, didn't, yeah. I was like, just talking to me and I couldn't see. <laughs> Uh, English yeah, one trademarked it, and when he died, it passed to me. So I didn't trademark. Oh, it. well. Anyway, for whatever reason, it's really it's important. Been trademarked. Me. It's been trademarked ever since Ingo uh, started. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's good to know. I'm so glad you're here, Lynn. Hey, everybody, look, it's Lynn. Yeah, <laughs> I know. <laughs> That's I great. Yeah. Okay, so what else? We have other people. How about Kamuti? Kamito. Kam How do you pronounce your name? <laughs> it's Kiao, like a cat that says meow, but I think Pablo was before me. Oh, Pablo? Pablo, 
Would you like Thanks, to? Yeah. Hi, Lorraine. Yeah, sorry I'm not on video, but I'm currently driving, so so got to keep my eyes on the road, right? Yes, very Lurie, good. Quick, quick question. Have you ever tried to use hypnosis after a session to, to get more information, like no kind of uh, offset uh, stage five or something like that, you know, like, like trying to retrieve more information from, from their viewer? The answer to your question is yes, but I want to put a big caveat on it <laughs> because it's not something I recommend like, oh, you know, after you do a real viewing session, you should do a hypnosis session to get more information. Um, it was actually a, a request when, for example, Mel, um, Mel had seen some of the work that I had done that was pretty kind of esoteric, some sessions. And he asked, and at that time, Jim, my husband, Jim, who was a hypnotherapist and I was a hypnotherapist and we had a very thriving hypnotherapy business in Amarillo, Texas. So um, we were doing, we were experimenting at that time with trying to see about getting information through hypnosis, through Jim hypnotizing me and asking me questions. And so it was kind of an, an experiment we were doing at the time. And I had shown something to Mel and he said, would you mind doing a hypnosis session with the thing that you and Jim are doing and see if you can uh, perceive me in, in Egypt in a past life or something along that line. And so we, um, we did, we did some hypnosis for Mel and some sessions for Mel. Um, I think we also tried some as an experiment, just kind of a research thing for Gail Husick at one point where she asked if we wanted to try this technique we were experimenting with and see if it provided extra information or if she could play it in reverse and see if any reverse speech things would come out of it. And this was many years ago. And actually it wasn't that fruitful. It wasn't that um, great of a technique to use. We tried it, but it, it wasn't as, to me, it wasn't as dependable as just straight CRV and maybe some ERV. <laughs> Thanks very much for sharing. I just was wondering when you mentioned hypnosis, uh, so yeah, not nice to see that some experiments have been performed and you know, that, that, that's something really nice. Thank you very much, Lori. Sure. Okay, how about you, Kiao? First of all, it's nice to see you. And um, I'll start by saying thank you for your introductory course, because I I wrote it before, but thank you for the course that I got back in uh, 2019. I, I forget how you call it. I think the introductory master class or something. But I, I picked up some really good habits there. And one of those was uh, keeping a dream diary. My problem is I have six questions, and I'm trying to reduce them down to five words. Um, but the, the, the essence of it is, is two-part, uh, learning how to improve your hit rate, staying on target, and learning how to teach that. So both from your experience as a person that has learned this and for a person that teaches it. In 20 words or less, that's it. I know it's a pretty loaded question. So I intend to go through your blog properly after and read all, everything you just kind of showed us there. Yeah, um, so I, let me make sure I understand the question. The question is, how do you learn it and then how do you teach it? <laughs> was that, yes, was that... yes. And, and, and stay on target. For example, you already touched a really important subject for me, but these days I'm falling into a trance and I'm not using cool down. And it's like, you know, my writing, like there's no, and I'm gone in the session. So that's cool. But the hit rate, uh, I've learned through these, these chats here, these Zoom chats, 
you don't have to do cool down. You, some people are perfectly normally awake at this state and they can, they can remote view just fine. Um, so I'm, I'm just really, really interested in improving my hit rate and staying on target. But also, did, like, did you start with outbounder targets? Uh, did you stay on one thing for a long time so you could consistently hit it? Like, there's so many ways to teach this and learn it at the same time. So that's my interest, getting better and, and what you know about the learning process. Okay, well, there's one thing is there's the classroom learning and then there's the practice, right? Mm -hmm. So what I, what I discovered, because Lynn was so generous with me and said, you know, come and if you want to teach this, you've got to come to every class I teach. Um, and at the time, you know, I mean, I was a mom with seven kids and a new grandbaby and a really crazy job running a refugee program that kept me busy 24-7. And um, Lynn lives a six hour drive away. So to, drive, to get to his place, I had to drive six hours and then come home six hours. So when he said, well, if you wanna teach, cause I called him and I said, I wanna teach your, your class. I don't wanna try to reinvent the wheel. He said, well, if you wanna teach my class you have to come to every, every class I teach. And he was teaching like every other weekend at that point. So I was driving to Alamogordo. I, 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 I always tease Lynn that I, I bet you thought I wouldn't do it. <laughs> so I, I actually, I would, I would jump in my car and drive, you know, for these weekend classes. And um, thankfully, though, I had a, a, a family situation that allowed that, allowed me to be gone for three days on the weekends. But it was really, um, it was, so I was getting all this through osmosis. I was sitting through class after class, after class, after class. I took basic so many times. I don't even, I lost count how many times I took basic and intermediate. I was a lot. I probably took advanced five or 10 times, but I took basic probably over 20 times at least and, and intermediate many, many times. So there's the, to answer your question, there's the learning through the classroom, but then until you put it into practice, it's not real and it'll just fall through the cracks and it'll just end up on somebody's shelf somewhere. So it was the practice of it that really causes people to become profound and, and world-class remote viewers um, is that continual practice. Uh, so, and, and it's a mixture of practice targets that have solid feedback that will give you a track record uh, and then some operational stuff. So you can work with in operations. And it's the thing is, a lot of people think, well, I can't do operations till I'm a really experienced remote viewer. And that's true, except that you can create your own little mini operational things within your own sphere of people that you know or whatever, you know, like, um, hey, Mary, I would like to remote view what you're going to be doing next Thursday at 4 p.m. Can I do that? Sure. Okay. And then would you set a timer so that at Thursday at 4 p.m. you'll just quickly jot down what you're doing? So that would be my feedback. Oh yeah, that sounds great. Okay. So then we, you know, you can set up your own things like that that are outside of the picture and envelope idea, right? And that makes it work better. Lori, could I throw in something here? Sure. Uh, you know, whenever you came back, I never charged you. I've never charged anybody for coming back to class. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, also, uh, if you remember, I have always told people, if you're not a trained CRV trainer, please don't charge for it. Or if you're not charging pure, if you're not teaching pure CRV, don't call it CRV. Mm -hmm. Okay. This is in respect to Ingo and the method we used and so forth but yeah. um, but i always request people that 
if you train somebody in CRV and you're not a qualified trainer, don't charge them for it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, that's for one thing, for one thing, you're going to learn probably more than they do. <laughs> it's so true. When you're teaching it, you it really becomes part of your psyche. But we are having a problem, Cal, with people hanging out a shingle and charging when they aren't really qualified to teach, and that's and that becomes a problem. But but yeah, I think that I think though Lynn and Lynn's you've always encouraged me on this, Lynn. You know, it's like yeah, teach your brother, teach your kid teach your spouse, you know, I mean, that's, that'll help you really ingrain everything in you if you're teaching someone else, but just don't hang out a shingle and, and put out ads and have people, you know, coming because of that. And if, if you start teaching it and somebody asks a question that you don't know the answer to, don't make something up. Call Lori, call me, call Paul Smith, call somebody who is qualified to answer it. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. We're really trying to protect CRV uh, from all the woo-woos and crazies and out of the internet and from people making up their own methods, which are not military grade and you know all that. So uh, I get very protective about CRV. So excuse all excuse all that. <laughs> that's no, that's fine. Did somebody else have their hand up? Rich, you still have your hand up. Do, do you actually still have a question? I do, but I see that there's other questions in the chat. Since I already asked if you wanted to jump to that, that's more than half fine, but I do have one still. Tanya, did you get your question answered with, Rich wrote a beautiful response to you, but um, when you asked about ideograms, is Tanya still here? Are you still here, Tanya? Oh, yeah, there you are. Hi, Tanya. Hi. <laughs> so um, let I, me- I didn't see that, I'll check it out. Say that again. I didn't see that. I'll check it out. Okay. Yeah. You and and also Tanya, if you have more questions about ideograms, um, if you go through those ideogram things on my website, uh, the free stuff mm -hmm. under the, the mini class. There's a mini class, and there's also the um, the uh, what's it called? Uh, PowerPoint. The PowerPoint on on ideograms. That's all under the free stuff tab. Um, that will give some more depth as to how we teach, how Lynn and I teach ideograms. That's if you're okay. that. Yeah, that's and you you said you took the free masterclass. I didn't even share that with everybody. But if, if for those of you who are not my students, um, if you're interested in the free masterclass, it's right um, here. It's it's right here. The free masterclass series. It's the first tab on the website. If you go to um, intuitivespecialist.com um, and I can put that in the in the chat. Um, for anybody. It's completely free. It's just a four part class. It goes over four days. And uh, I put that there, that link is right there in the chat. If you want to copy that, if you, if you've already been through it, um, I don't know that it'll let you go through it again. It, it's, it, it's automation and technology, which are not my favorite things, but um, anyway, but if you, about twice a year, we, we zap all the records so that anybody who's been through it can go through it again. And we, we put it out again, new. So if you've already been through it and want to go through it again, uh, we'll probably be doing that in another month or two. And then uh, if you haven't been through it and you want to, um, it's available. It's totally free. And uh, it's just a four-part class. It's an actual class. It's like eight hours of teaching. Um, so that's there. Okay. And uh, 
then Chris says, I wish someone would put CRV out on LinkedIn. It would be perfect tool. I actually, I have a LinkedIn page, CRV page, Chris. Um, so I, I, it is there sort of, <laughs> and then um, what else? There's a earlier question from Paul Cosby. He asked, uh, is it common for an individual to be conscious of uh, when another viewer is viewing them? Not in my experience. Um, I haven't ever felt like I was being remote viewed. And that's the thing about remote viewing though, is it's not, if it's done correctly, it's not really detectable. So when people write me and say, somebody's remote viewing me, um, you know, I know someone's remote viewing me or they accuse me of remote viewing them or Lynn of remote, remote viewing them, which we've all gotten. Um, one thing I, I always say is, okay, what is there about you that makes you so important that I would stop time with my family or stop taking care of my students because I want to remote view you? That would, you know, that's just not logical um, unless you have state secrets or something that that some government person really has to have, I, you know, then maybe they would hire a remote viewer to remote view you. But without that, um, I can't imagine a reason why anyone would be remote viewed. Um, however, at the same time, sometimes people do feel like they're being watched or whatever. Um, and if they're being watched, they're not being watched by a remote viewer because a true controlled remote viewer um, knows how to remote view in a way that it's non-detectable. Um, and so, yes, Yale, Yale says sometimes people feel when people think about them, and that is true. And there's a big difference between someone thinking about you and remote viewing you. There's a, that's a, there's a big difference in that. Um, so, yes, sometimes you can kind of feel when someone's thinking about you or, or you just think about them and they think about you and then you call them or they call you and you're like, wow, I was just thinking about you. That's amazing. That's, that's because we're all connected. Uh, but remote viewing, in my remote viewing experience, I've never run into another remote viewer, like Lynn talked about in his book, where he ran into another remote viewer. I haven't run into another remote viewer, and I haven't felt like I was being messed with by another remote viewer either. So I don't know if, if that answered your question. I can only answer it from my point of view. Paul, Paul Cosby asked that. Is it common for an individual to be conscious of when another? So no, it's not common. That's the answer to that question. It's not common. Um, and then I think that's all the questions from the uh, the chat window. So I guess it's back to Rich. Right. David asked, I don't see Ingo's name on that trademark, Lynn. This would be a Lynn question. A guy named David's asking, I don't see Ingo's name on the trademark. You probably don't even see the trademark um, because I've never yeah, seen I think it. The, uh, I think that Ingo had it as a copyright. I'm not sure. Uh, I didn't think you could copyright a procedure or something, but uh, I know when I first got into the unit, they told me, you know, that this is uh, Ingo's patented process. And uh, so, so uh, yeah, I have never really looked at the uh, trademark except you know, it's a bunch of legal jargon. I see my name on it and that's, you know, and uh, um, it has since progressed another way too. So anyway, uh, yeah, but 
Uh, I think that he had it as a copyright, and I didn't know that was possible. Mm. Okay, cool. So, um, yes, that's what Des said. Inga owned the copyright, which is different from the trademark. Yeah, I think I, I, I remember when you first decided, though, to see if you could get a trademark. And I remember you called and asked about it. And you said that the attorney said it's a service mark rather than a trademark on on it, but that, um, but that the term, those three words, controlled remote viewing as a, as a term had not been yet service marked. And then, then that's when that happened. I, I just, that's my, that's where my experience with this whole idea came in, but I thought it was a great idea. And I totally supported Lynn with that because too many people were, uh, it, you know, the whole, the whole process is going to disappear if too many people name something controlled remote viewing when they're actually teaching something that is not controlled remote viewing. So if we want to protect it, that's the best way to protect it. I thought it was awesome that Lynn did that. Um, yeah, I don't plan to be the CRV police or anybody, but, you know, when somebody uh, uh, is saying that they uh, are teaching CRV, and they're charging for it. Uh, I do ask them to at least show me what they're doing. And if it's not CRV, then I ask them to please name it something else. Because whether it's CRV or not, it may work. <laughs> I mean, CRV is not the end all and be all of the whole thing, you know? Yeah. I love CRV because it's kind of, to me, it's kind of like the basket that holds um, a lot of other techniques and things. Okay, so are there any more questions? Oh, we've got more hands up. Okay, how about Jimmy? Hi, Jimmy. Hi, thank you very much. Sure. Um, my question was uh, based on something you said a little bit ago that a trained uh, CRV viewer would be able to monitor someone in a way that didn't reveal that fact. I was wondering if you could discuss how that works or fill that in a little bit more. Do you mean, when you say monitor, um, I think we have a different meaning for monitor. Uh, monitor yeah. You mean uh, remote view, to remote viewing? Yourself? Yeah. So if you were remote viewing me and I was sensitive to other people remote viewing me, how would you keep me from noticing you doing that? Um, you know, it's interesting because throughout the history of this whole thing, um, they, there was a lot of experimentation done in the military unit. And uh, one of the things, and Lynn, Lynn can speak to this as well, but one of the things was they discovered that, for example, the Russians seemed to have developed something that would keep a remote viewer from viewing certain things. Like, oh, how did they protect that? How did they manage to do that? What can, you know, and, and if they can do it, we've got to learn how to do it, right? As is the nature of war. So if they can do it, we have to learn how to do it. And so they had to develop a way to protect something from being viewed. So they chose a person, a place, and a thing. So Lynn, do you want to take it from here? <laughs> because Lynn can, can speak to this much more thoroughly. They decided to protect a, a place which is still classified. They decided to protect a person, which was Lynn. And they described, decided to protect a thing, which was what we call the story stone. The history of the story stone is a protected object. So 
they altered things in the matrix in order to do it. It wasn't easy to do, but they were able to do that. So how do we naturally keep protected from remote viewing? Well, it's, you can't always protect yourself from being remote viewed, but the, the thing is, is that when it comes to noticing when you're being remote viewed, if you're truly being remote viewed by someone who really knows what they're doing, and uh, then it's non-detectable. And one reason we consider it's a theory, this is a theory, we don't have proof of this, but one theory is that when using controlled remote viewing and you're, you're using the structure, the written structure, and you're getting pieces of information that you're kind of putting together, it's almost like you're building a virtual reality. Um, so you're not really viewing the actual target, you're viewing a copy of the target. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So if I'm viewing a copy of the target and I'm not actually viewing the real target, for example, let's say that I wanted to view a top secret military installation and they have cameras everywhere and guard dogs, right? So if I do an out of body, if I go out of body and I appear at this location, the guard dogs might see me because I'm like a ghost in a way, right? So the, the dogs start barking and then the people on the closed circuit cameras go, uh-oh, our security's been compromised. We need to switch to plan B. And it, the, whole, the whole thing is useless because we've now, our, our security's been compromised or we've, we've been discovered as remote viewers. So instead of using OBE as a technique, we use controlled remote viewing and we're writing everything down and it's in a very structured pattern. And it's almost like the, um, what, what was it called? The holodeck on the Starship Enterprise? You know, so they would step into the holodeck and they would buy into that reality, but it was a virtual reality. It wasn't really real. Okay, so if you're remote viewing and you get to the point where you have gotten all these perceptions and you've gotten so deep into it that you buy into it and it suddenly seems very real to you, that's what bilocation is you're actually, you've bought into it so much that you're now standing in full blown holodeck buying into everything you're experiencing. So in that case, if I were gonna remote view you, I wouldn't actually remote view you. I would remote view what in a essence would be a copy of you. But we also have techniques in which we're communicating subconscious to subconscious. I worked on a kidnapping case many years ago <clears throat> and actually communicated with the guard that was guarding the kidnap victims. And now I could say, you know what? Um, I, I might've made this whole thing up, you know, but the thing was, is I got feedback that everything I got was accurate. The guard told me the name of the group that was doing the kidnapping and gave me an instant understanding of what their ideology was. And the name was a very long name, like the Symbionese Liberation Army, but it was in a foreign language. It was a name like that though. And it was in a foreign language. Um, that I speak. So I was able to turn that information in. The, the um, investigators found the group and it indeed did exist and it was that name. Um, you know, but at the same time, whenever I share stuff like that in a report, I always say, now take this with a grain of salt because it is, you know, it's a noun, it's and nouns are suspect. Um, but also, uh, he also told me the name of the village they were closest to and we were able to find that um, using a, a very specific map and get the coordinates. And, and we were able to, and, and when we looked at it on Google Earth, it matched exactly the drawings that I'd made of the location. And, um, and so it was really, really interesting. Um, it's in that 
you can create this virtual reality, but yet you can still communicate mind to mind on a subconscious level. If, if I could maybe ask a follow-up. Um, sure. So I used to be a detective and um, there were different ways of spotting bad guys. One way would be like doing a records investigation. So, you know, you look up everything you can find out about this person in records, but you never actually see the person. And so they can't see you. They have no idea if you're looking up their driver's license history, for example. On the other hand, there is another way of catching bad guys, which is to spot them committing their crime. And you don't want them to see you. So you might, if you suspect they're about to commit the crime, you might be in the area, but you might be peeking around a corner as opposed to just standing out in plain view. Right. And on uh, analogizing that to what you're talking about, it seems like an OBE would sort of be equivalent to standing out in plain view. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whereas, whereas um, using CRV, would be either more like doing a record search or peeking around a corner a little bit. Um, yeah. Are those fair analogies? Yeah, uh, yes. And I think the record search is really good in the sense that they have no idea you're looking up their driver's license. But um, yeah, for sure. It's, and so, and also though, I really want to, you know, reassure everyone that this isn't, we don't make a game out of remote viewing people. And yeah. we're, you know, definitely not. I mean, like I say, I have a life. I have better things to do than remote view anybody. You know what I mean? <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to, remote viewing can actually be pretty taxing depending on what you're viewing and viewing people. You know, even if you're viewing Mother Teresa, even Mother Teresa had a dark side. So you don't want to go messing around in those dark spaces in people's minds. You know, I don't recommend it at all. <laughs> it's not, yeah. a, not a good thing to do. But I'd, I, I'd, I'd love to hear more about the, uh, the process of guarding things uh, from protecting them from being viewed. Um, I've heard different things from different Stargate viewers about the extent to which they think that's possible, but I, I, I'll, I'll wait and maybe I can ask a, a follow-up on that a bit later, but I'd love other people to have a chance to ask their questions. Okay. That, yeah, that sounds good. I'm not sure that exactly. Um, let's see here. Uh, David's asking, has Lori ever felt she was spotted by someone or acknowledged by anyone in an esoteric target? Um, yes, David, the answer to that is yes, in the sense that when I did that target I was just talking about on Mars, for example, I and, and Mel Riley experienced the exact same thing. We both felt that we were definitely not just spotted, but we were actually being communicated with, you know, that that was they wanted to talk with us. Um, and so, you know, if you were to ask me a year before that, you know, if I ever thought that was possible, I'd be like, no, you're crazy. Um, so, you know, that the, the, that happening was pretty mind-blowing for me, um, especially when Mel said the exact same thing had happened to him. I was like, whoa. Since then, we've given that exact same target to like five other really top-notch world-class remote viewers, and they've all had the same experience that Mel and I had, which is, you know, they all ended up talking to, communicating with these blue beings that gave the same message, which is quite interesting. Um, Anyway, let me, let's check in with, how about Ida? Hi, Ida. Hi, Lori. Um, I have a, a bit of a 
it's almost an awkward question. When people become interested in remote viewing, now, I, I do have a history. In fact, I've had some communication with some of the people in your group about taking your course. But this was back in the 70s and some training that was being done before it was widely um, disseminated. Mm -hmm. the, um, the recruitment of people into the remote viewing community, because uh, several people have talked about this. Uh, Paul kind of jumps to mind right off the bat that there were, I presume it was the MTBI test and uh, or assessment and some other psychological profile assessments. And a lot of people, it seems like, have come out of uh, environments where uh, perhaps they had psychic ability or they were highly suggestible because they'd been involved in other, like you have talked about your um, Christian environment your very mm -hmm. limited Christian environment and other mm -hmm. people have talked about various other groups. So do you think that that would be a, a, uh, or is it just in curiosity? I mean, I, I'm, I'm confused about how people are drawn to remote viewing. I mean, I, I was just looking for, I needed a certain number of credits to graduate from college and the professors had observed me as being a rather independent, free-thinking type person and said, hey, we need you to take this class and you need these hours anyway. Mm -hmm. um, but it seems like most people have been caught up in, okay, wrong term, have been affiliated with a very groupthink type of, of uh lifestyle and then they come in i mean whether it's the military or christian groups or whatever other affiliations they have and then they end up in remote viewing so what's your question though i i'm, I'm i kind of lost the thread you okay just just give me a concise question <laughs> is it is the process of, of becoming a remote viewer well, and this is really kind of open-ended, I guess. That's the problem. Is In the process of becoming a remote viewer, is it more likely that you'll be a, quote, success if you have been accustomed to, um, shall I say, following orders or being part of a certain type of regimented group? I don't think so, Ida. You know, right now, um, I, I, my school has over 2,000 active students, and they are from every possible walk of life and from all over the world and every religion, and and all of them are finding success. I mean, it's it, it's a you know it's it's a process. It's a step by step thing. So it's like learning to read. You know, I mean, unless you have some impediment that would keep you from learning to read pretty much everybody learns to read, you know? I mean, if they have the access to education, right? So I think it's the same with this. It's like a mental martial art. Um, the more work you're willing to put into it, 
the more successful you're going to be. The more willing you are to practice, the more successful you'll be. That's my experience with it. Um, so I feel like a trained controlled remote viewer is worth their weight in gold, uh, especially if they practice on a regular basis. That's, that's the key. So I hope that answered the question, but that's, yeah, I don't feel that there's any certain thing or any certain type that does better than other. Although I will say this, I, I have noticed that people, there, there are people who are extremely right-brained, people who are extremely left-brained. And the people that I see doing the best with CRV are those who kind of have a good balance of the two. Okay, because Inga, the readings I've found, basically it discusses that he he was just freeform and then he reverse engineered basically his um, his process so that it could be taught step by step to mm -hmm. people who were chosen or, or who were brought in based on some but it just it just seems from from what I've heard now this is you know a limited exposure to the remote viewing groups it's always well I was in the military or I was in this I had this group affiliation or I had you know a particular religious affiliation or what and each one of those involves a regimented thinking a following orders type thinking Right, but I think I think what it is, Ida, is if you're depending on what what circles you're traveling in, what you're looking at. Um, if you're only traveling in circles where you're running into those people, then that's what you're going to hear. But now, because I'm working with over two thousand students, I'm seeing people from every walk of life. So what I what I've noticed in in all my twenty six years of being involved with this, I've watched all the interactions between all these different factions, if you want to call them that. Um, I've seen the disagreements, I've seen the arguments over and over again. And what, I, what I've really noticed is that, that uh, some people are really aware of how things are evolving because this is an evolution, just like language evolves, right? We say things nowadays that people a hundred years ago would have no clue what we were talking about, right? Because language evolves. Language evolves, remote viewing CRV is evolving. And that sounds like heresy to some people that, that we say that, but actually Ingo, um, you know, he stayed involved with remote viewing many years after he was no longer being paid by the military. He developed things afterwards that people who became really good friends with him are party to, that people who perhaps were trained by him are not party to because they didn't see that evolution. They weren't part of it. Um, and now, of course, we're teaching people from every walk of life um, and in every religion, every, you know, male, female, uh, you know, just from everywhere. Um, so if you're, if you're hanging out in my circles, you'll become aware of all those people uh, because that's where they are hanging out now, a lot of them. <laughs> so I don't know. Right, if that well, that, that's really good to know because I always compare, I mean, what my experience had been is that um, I told my grandson, I said, well, I can now read your text because you leave out all vowels and <laughs> I can read your text because you speak emoji. I'm, I've figured out that it's not a Hershey's kiss. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was really embarrassing. And um, 
I said, but you know, Hebrew doesn't use vowels either. So you should, you know, also learn to read Hebrew simply because if you can, if you can read emoji, you can learn Hebrew. And okay. there was this long pause. So yeah. I, I'm, I think I'm getting what you're saying about okay. evolution. I, I'm going to go move on though, because we don't have much more time sure. and I want to be sure we get to everybody. Um, sure. Um, so now let's see, uh, Tracy, Yale said they changed in the Akashic records. If I call Yale, I can tell you right off the bat that the military never used the term Akashic records that I'm aware of. Lynn might, if, if I'm wrong, Lynn can correct me, but uh, I don't think they ever did. Okay, Lynn's shaking his head. Nope. So uh, the answer to that question is no, they did not change things in the Akashic records. Um, Tracy asked, so leading on from the regarding the, do the guard dogs, do you think all animals can detect you no, when you're, if you're remote viewing, that's the whole point, Tracy, they, do, guard dogs won't detect you either. If you're doing OBE, guard dogs will detect you. If you're doing a remote, true controlled remote viewing, the guard dogs won't detect you. Um, and then Rich says, makes me wonder what mankind has lost where we're not as in tune with these things like, excuse me, like animals are, perhaps our ego. Uh, there are a lot of in tune animals. Um, Let's see. Okay, I'm looking for, so Don had to leave. Let me see anything else. Um, okay, Anita, bye-bye. It was great to see you. So Rich, I think, I don't think there's a lot of hands up. Did you want to ask your question now? I made the cut. Um, yeah, um, actually I was going to piggyback off Pablo's question. I thought it was interesting. If I understood it correctly, he was more interested in uh, hypnosis after the fact of remote viewing. I'm more interested in, have you integrated self-hypnosis with your remote viewing training to maybe make you a better remote viewer before you remote view? Um, okay, I, I'll tell you what I've done as far as hypnosis goes. One thing is that, that we wanna be careful about mixing methods. Like we don't wanna mix a bunch of methods with controlled remote viewing. We wanna keep it as pure as possible. So we don't mix, for example, hypnosis with CRV or anything else to the, to the thing. In fact, if you, let's say you had a tech, let's say you were a crystal ball reader and you were like really super accurate reading crystal balls. You can actually incorporate that into CRV if you document, so let's say you're, you're writing, you're doing your structure of CRV and you go, you know, I think I'm gonna take a look at my crystal ball and see what it says. You're gonna document, I'm going to go now to look at my crystal ball and, and it's, it's uh, 1730. And then you're gonna put everything you got from the crystal ball down. And then you're gonna say, now I'm done looking at the crystal ball, I'm going back into session into my regular CRV format and you're gonna put the time. And that way it's very delineated what information came through the crystal ball versus what came through just regular CRV. That's the only way to incorporate other methods into the CRV structure is if you clearly document that. I had a lady who did some kind of a technique that she called the Akashic something. And she would, she said, well, in the middle of this session, I decided to, to use my Akashic blah, blah, blah technique. And that's how she would do it. She would say, now I'm going to go use my Akashic blah, blah, blah. And I'm going to, you know, she'd put the time and she'd do it. And then she'd incorporate all that information, but it was very clearly delineated. This is, that way you can score it and say, which, which technique actually provided the greatest accuracy, my Akashic reading thing or my CRV or my crystal ball reading or my CRV, my reading entrails or my CRV, whatever you're into, you know? Um, but when it came to hypnosis, to answer your question more directly, um, 
I got into hypnosis because of CRV, you know, but as I realized how much, what a role the subconscious mind plays, how it's literally plugged into the great big cosmic database in the sky and has access to everything that ever was or ever will be. Then I thought that hypnosis was a natural follow-on to learn hypnosis. And I actually got into it because after 9-11, my boss said, hey, our nonprofit may have to shut its doors. And I know you're a single mom right now. And, you know, you should probably have something to fall back on. So I thought, I'm going to go to hypnosis school. You know, so I, I went to hypnosis school because of CRV. And I found that there was a lot of correlations in things, for example, that I was learning from Lynn how, um, you know, there's a, there, like Lynn teaches a, a class and, and now I teach it too called MedApps. And we use a thing we call the building analogy. And I found that that was a wonderful tool to use within hypnosis uh, to help people discover more things about themselves and, and overcome trauma and things like that. Um, so I would incorporate CRV stuff into my hypnosis practice, but I didn't like incorporating hypnosis into my CRV practice. However, at one point I did make a series of recordings, hypnosis recordings for remote viewers if they wanted to use these recordings as a cool down prior to remote viewing. Um, and I had uh, several students that I asked me for them and I made them for them and gave them, sold them to them or gave them to them or whatever I did back then. And, and they were just like, oh my gosh, my accuracy improved. I've, I just feel better when I'm practicing after listening to that. But it's no different really from any other form of cooling down. You know, like some people want to listen to rock music. Some people want to listen to scriptures on tape. Some people want to uh, go mow their lawns before they do it or meditate or work out or whatever any cool down that works for you is, is the best cool down, right? Um, and so I found though that for some people, they just love listening to those hypnosis, pre-CRV pre hypnosis recordings. So yeah. we're not blending them in any way. We're just having hypnosis a little, it's more like a meditation, a guided meditation really. Yeah, that's what I was more interested in, not concurrent with your CRV session, but just to use self-hypnosis to train the subconscious mind to open up more when you are doing a CRV session. So that's yeah. interesting. You had that. That's cool. Yeah. So that's what, that was the idea behind the recording was just yeah. to kind of help people open up more and accept more the idea that, you know, yeah. Cause I, I think our, our belief systems really affect how, how accurate we are. Like if you think, you know, if I, I don't have a, I don't have a psychic bone in my body, you know, <laughs> there's a, you know, versus I'm, I can totally do this. Anyone can do this. Um, you know, I think that's, uh, we tried an experiment once um, in one of my remote viewing groups, because I have uh, a five tier membership club that people join and that are my students. And then as you know, in basic, they're in the basic club, and then they get into intermediate, and they have access to the intermediate and the basic club, and then they get into advanced, they have a, you know, access to the advanced, intermediate and basic clubs. Um, and so in one of those groups, we did an experiment where to start out um, we had two groups of people and one group focused on imagining that they were like a really successful sports coach, like a basketball coach or something, or really successful athlete, like super, you know, winning all the trophies and really successful athlete. And the other group imagined that they were like a really successful, really smart scientist, like, you know, whatever kind of scientist. I don't remember now. We were very specific in what they were imagining though. And so we had people focus on that and then do the do a practice session. And people that thought that they were more, that they were, they were who were imagining themselves as scientists were really, really smart 
people, they tended to do a little better than the ones who imagine themselves as athletes. And why would that be? Well, we, what do we tend to think about athletes? We tend to think that they're really amazingly gifted physically, but often don't have a lot up here, right? And then we, <laughs> then we, that's a stereotype, right? And then we also have stereotypes about scientists that they're super, super smart. And so um, they found, and, and I didn't make this up. I read this as a study. It was a study that was done with high school students before they were taking their SAT exams. Um, to, to, you know, they had half of them imagining they were athletes and the other half imagining that they were right, phys physicists or something. Um, and, and the ones that imagined they were physicists did much better on their SOTs. So I thought, I wonder if you could use that with remote viewing. <laughs> See how that goes. <laughs> it's very interesting. <laughs> so, um, and then Julie asked, what would you say are your strengths within a CRV session? People, Julie, people are my strength. That's the thing I am usually, if, if I'm viewing a person, um, I'm, I'm, I have a pretty good track record of accuracy whenever I'm viewing people. That's my strength. Um, did anybody, did I miss any questions? I think that's it in the chat window. I think Jimmy's, has Jimmy got another question you want to ask? Yeah, I was just wondering if uh, if you or Lynn could discuss a little bit more how the process of shielding things from remote viewing would work. I've heard some skepticism about that from some former Stargate people, and I'd love to understand it better. Lynn, you have to address this one because I don't feel that I am adequate for this question. <laughs> okay, one of the uh, things that we <clears throat> have found like Lori said a while ago, if you're doing CRV correctly, there's no shielding. Okay. Uh, you're fair game. All right. Uh, when people start doing it incorrectly, they can be detected and all that. And uh, um, as far as shielding yourself from remote viewing, that's a piece of cake. All the old things of, you know, put up the bubble around you and, and all of that. Uh, put up the mirrored surface around you or shield yourself in the white light. Uh, that works with a lot of methods. And that's why it keeps being, uh, uh, that's why keep, you keep hearing about it because it works. But with CRV, CRV is not the same as regular psychic methods. And uh, um, over the, what, 40 some odd years now that we've been doing this, we have developed tools within the CRV methodology uh, that uh, make it so that there's, there's not any protection from it if it's being done correctly, which is, which is kind of scary, actually. Uh, but uh, the uh, and one of the simplest, uh, one time uh, there was a uh, drug ship and it was being protected. <clears throat> and uh, some of the CRVers even, couldn't get to that ship. They knew where it was. We had a report from the 
Coast Guard at exactly the point where it was and all that. And uh, we kept getting this sort of fog that was around the ship. And I believe it was Scott, At Scott, um, Skip. Uh, Skip, Skip Atwater, who, uh, <laughs> who I was finding the fog too, you know. And he said, well, if it weren't protected, what would you find? And I said, well, if it weren't protected, I would find. And I went on to describe the target, you know. <laughs> and uh, uh, so, you know, this is one of the things Gloria said, that uh, this is advancing. And yet, when we advance CRV, we do it by somebody coming up with an idea. And then we have 50 to 100 people try that idea out 50 to 100 times, keep data on it. If it works, then it's accepted into the CRV. Uh, just new ideas that people come up with. Listen, in the military unit, we had thousands of really good ideas. Their main problem was <laughs> once you keep data on them, they didn't work. And so, uh, you know, um, but it's like I compare it to the medical establishment. The medical establishment, you do certain things in exactly the certain way. That doesn't mean that medicine is not advancing. You know, mm -hmm. CRV is the same way. Len, but, with uh, regards, to, sorry to interrupt, with regards to you. blocking, what about the story stone? Has anybody ever managed to get the history of the story stone by doing CRV correctly? No, they haven't. Uh -uh. Uh, no, uh, one of the other viewers and I, we had a sort of standing order to uh, find a way to protect from being remote viewed, even CRV. We never really found it, but this one other viewer and I, in our spare time, um, worked on this problem. And we found uh, three different ways that you can protect from even the best CRV. And uh, we wrote it up. We took it over to the uh, director of the unit at the time. And that director at the unit at that time was a was the world's worst micromanager you've ever seen in your life. He cussed us out for doing something that he didn't order us to do, ripped it up, threw it in the trash. And so uh, that was that. But the uh, story stone is, one, is protected in one of the ways. And so far, nobody has been able to break that protection. And so everybody's been asking you, how, what is the protection? But you can't share that. Am I correct? Well, I'm not going to share it. Uh, but uh, <laughs> one, because I don't know. I can't break it myself. <laughs> uh, and what I tell people is, if they find a way to break that protection, please let me know so I can let the government know, okay? Because uh, that could be a very important thing. But... Um, uh, but yeah, uh, I know the history of the story stone. The story stone is not protected. The history of the story stone is. 
And uh, I know the history of the story stone because I knew it beforehand. Um, part of the protection is, one of the other protections is that uh, um, you don't want to get, try to get into my mind to get secrets, okay? It's, that one's, that one's a dangerous one. Anyway, um, the, uh, the idea has been, you know, well, let's remote view it before there was protection. Doesn't work. Uh, nobody so far has been able to, to break the protection on the story stone. Uh oh, did we lose you? I hope they can. Get that. Could you try again? Uh, Sorry. Yeah. Suddenly I lost Lynn's volume. Did it, can everybody still hear him? Yeah, we yeah. can hear loud and clear. No problem. Yeah, we can. Okay, yeah. Sorry. I'm still not sure about that. All right. Suddenly Siri is out of control. Go away, Siri. <laughs> I'm still not sure about that. I can still not sure about what? Siri's just having a panic attack. Anyway. Oh. Okay, so Series Thank you very much. For sure. um, Julie, I just want to answer Julie's question. Julie, can you hear me? Can everybody hear me okay? Give me a thumbs up if you hear me okay. Sorry, I'm still not sure about that. This off. How do I get? How do I get? Uh, shut up. Yeah, we can hear. Yeah, you. we can hear you great. Okay, good. Okay, so um, I was going to answer Julie's question. Julie, uh, when there's nobody at the target then it, you know it's not a problem i don't i'm not saying i can't view anything but people i'm just saying that's my strength you asked what my strength was uh viewing people is my strength but i can also i've also done really well on location targets and event targets and activity targets and future technology targets and things like that too so uh usually a target we don't just view random things you know I mean, usually there's a very specific reason for doing a remote viewing session and uh if you have data and you have a project that needs to be remote viewed, you're going to look through your data and choose the viewers whose strengths can be best utilized based on the target and the, the need. Does that make sense? Does that make sense, um, Julie? Are you still there, Julie? <laughs> Julie Tasker, is she still with us? I think she's still there somewhere. Anyway, so that's, my, that's the answer to that question. Uh, does anybody else have any other questions before we go? Oh, wait, Pablo's got his okay. hand up. Pablo, did you have a question? Absolutely. Thank you, Lori. Don't want to take too much from your time, but, you know, I love teaching. I love learning. And one of the big questions when, when one is, you know, probably not in something as, as interesting as remote viewing, but back in college when I was teaching, uh, you know, sometimes you find out that people usually struggle in average more with some su subjects or parts of a process. And wanted to ask you in your journey of teaching remote viewing, which do you think is the, the part where most of the students get some trouble? Um, I think that I usually tell my students that the first day of basic is the hardest day of any class they'll ever take with me because it's such a huge paradigm leap from everything they're used to, you know, learning about ideograms. I remember when I first started taking a lot of the way I teach is based on how I felt as a new student and some of the things I struggled with. So those are the things I emphasize more when I'm teaching, you know, because those seem to be the things a lot of viewers, uh, new students have a problem with. 
Um, and I remember that Lynn said at one point early on, you know, he said, ideograms are such a profound thing. I could teach for a week on nothing but ideograms. And I remember thinking, I don't get it. <laughs> like, why? <laughs> and it, it, it took a while before it really clicked. And I went, oh my gosh, ideograms are amazing. And I really got layers and layers of understanding as I went through these past 26 years, there would be, you know, years down the road, I would suddenly have a new revelation about ideograms. And I finally, you know, just like, wow, I finally get what Lynn was saying about how profound ideograms are. So, but for me, what I've noticed is for many students, ideograms themselves are the big, the big thing. Like, uh, you know, they, they want it. They, we get, we talk about ideograms, even in the advanced courses, we still go back to discussing ideograms sometimes. Uh, because it's just, they're, they're just the key. They're the foundation to the whole process. Um, so that's, I hope that answered your question. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Sure. And then someone says, is there somewhere to do test targets with those kinds of specifics rather than the usual landmark test targets? Hmm. Oh, and Silk's asking if I turned into a vegan. Silk, I am not a vegan. I was a vegan for about 18 months. We, we were raw food vegans, my husband and I, when he got diagnosed with stage two prostate cancer. We did, uh, we did a completely raw vegan diet for about 18 months to see if that would turn things around. In addition to meditation and uh, SCXT and all kinds of things we did while he had the stage two cancer, none of it worked. Um, and we ended, he ended up doing a procedure to get the prostate taken care of. Um, but we did it for about 18 months and now we are, we're not real heavy meat eaters, but we are definitely not vegan. Um, and, and I haven't really noticed that it affected my viewing one way or the other between veganism and not, I didn't really keep steady data though. And then, um, okay, Rich, thank you. Thank you for being here. Um, Yes. Okay. So it's time we need to go. We're at past time. Um, I don't know about C's question. She asked, is there somewhere to do test targets with these kinds of specifics? But I'm not sure what you mean by these kinds of specifics, C. So I'm not sure what you mean. Bye, Nicole. Have a great weekend. Well, thanks for all that, Laurie, and for Lynn coming along and helping as well. Uh, it was a great chat with lots of information there that, for everyone. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it as well. It was so much fun. I really loved it. Guys, thank you so much for being here and for asking such great questions. This is awesome. It's really been fun to be here with everybody. And yes, for those of you who don't know, one other last thing I just want to share for those of you who are here on the website, we also have free targets. And so let me just show you at the bottom of the page on every page, under resources, there's RV target pools. These are very simple targets. And Lynn Buchanan at crviewer.com. Um, Lynn, if you want to type that in the chat, crviewer.com. Lynn's site has targets of the week. Those are really good targets. It's really, they're better than mine. The ones on my website are very simple targets, photographs I've taken. They're great for basic students that are just starting out. But if you're a more advanced um, or an intermediate level and you really want to dive your teeth into some really juicy good targets, Lynn's got them. Uh, he's got 450 of them on his website. So thanks guys. It was great to talk yeah, to thanks everybody. everyone. It's been a great evening. Uh, next week we got uh, John Herlowski coming along and he's going to be talking about his experiences in his book, Sorcerer's Apprentice. So 
that should be a great evening as well. Thanks again, Laurie, and thanks everyone for asking your questions. And I hope you all have a good, good weekend. Thanks so much, Dad. Great Take to care. see you. Yeah, bye. Nice bye. See you. Thank you. Take care, everyone. Stay safe. Bye bye. Bye. -bye. bye, -bye. Thanks for listening to The Signal Line, a remote viewing podcast. Don't forget to check out remoteviewed.com for remote viewing resources or our videos on YouTube under Remote Viewed. <laughs>